Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. We've got another episode here of the Basin Breakdown for the month of November. As always, it is myself, Tavis, joined here by Kevin. What's up, everybody? And we're hoping to deliver some of the biggest news or most interesting news, Basin by Basin, but you know the drill at this point. So, Kevin, please take it away. So we're going to start with our home state of Colorado here, and, well, we've got some regulatory changes coming down the chamber. So many changes have occurred within the regulatory space of Colorado since Senate Bill 181 was signed into law in April of 2019. New directors for the COGCC were instated with the primary objective of regulating the industry rather than fostering it. Late in November marked the implementation of a new 2,000-foot setback from homes and schools that the industry attempted to fight for several months. The debate between regulators and operators, along with COVID, prevented this from being finished by the end of the summer. The setback distance used to be 500 feet, and an operator applying for a permit to draw closer than 2,000 feet should be prepared to have it denied. Other rules included wildlife protection by minimizing operators in mitigation corridors, critical habitats, wetlands, and watersheds. Thankfully, the COGCC improved the application process, making it more streamlined. Even so, disputes over location may require a company to provide an alternative site analysis in order to provide an alternative location. In the coming months, the commission is expected to address rules around well bonding and cleanup and worker safety. Man, this is just difficult. I understand we have to have regulations to protect a lot of different things, nature, people included, but it seems like it's getting more and more difficult within this. Well, uh, in in the first part of this article really hit the nail on the head. These new COGCC regulators, they're now in a position to regulate the industry instead of foster it. And the founding purpose of the COGCC was to develop a relationship between the people and the state and foster this industry that's doing so much for our state. So kind of like you said, I do like the direction. They're trying to minimize the impact to the environment, to habitats, to animals, to people. I get that. But it just seems like a 500 to a 2,000 feet. It's just a little bit of an extreme (laughs) jump, I think. Yeah. Next up, we've got a little bit between Boulder and extraction. So extraction oil and gas recently began development on a 32-pad well site near the Boulder and Weld County line. But that process was interrupted when Boulder claimed it had conservation easements on the property after a resident tipped off the county to the operations. While Boulder does have the easements established, extraction argued that their leasing predates any of Boulder's conservation efforts. The court sided with extraction and Boulder appealed to a Delaware bankruptcy court, as that is where extraction is based. Unfortunately, this leaves the agreement in limbo, as bankruptcy-related issues are a higher priority than all other litigation, as extraction is in the middle of restructuring. This allowed extraction the right to continue construction on well sites, but rather than choosing to construct sites that would potentially go to waste, extraction has filed for a permit extension to protect their land rights. If the COGCC agrees to extend the permit's application expiration until six months after a court rules on the pending litigation, then Boulder will vacate the upcoming hearing in bankruptcy court. If the COGCC denies the application for a drilling permit extension, then extraction may lose the right to drill on the lease land if it does not finish its bankruptcy restructuring in time. So really, this is a a buzzer beater sort of situation. I was going to say, this is a hot mess right here. Right, so extraction comes in, they start development. A county resident of Boulder says, hey, wait a minute, I'm not cool with that, tells the city. City says, we actually have easements set up on that property, which they did, but extraction said, actually, our land rights and leasing predate your easements. So went to court. Court said, yeah, extraction has the right to drill here. So Boulder appealed, which 
first locks up the operations. I mean, they do have the right to build, but if it goes to later court... They can't drill. Exactly. And they take it back, well, then you've just sunk money into a well site that does absolutely nothing. So Boulder really is trying to run out the clock, but hopefully the COGCC sees what's happening and tries to work with them. Well, looking at the last story, who knows? But leasing issues do seem to be a bit of a theme all across the country, because if we take a quick trip from the DJ to Powder River in Wyoming, we see that a judge is blocking leasing. So in early November, a federal court judge blocked drilling on more than 300,000 acres of land in Wyoming, claiming that the government failed to adequately consider its impact on climate change, which is an argument we've become all too familiar with at this point. The judge ordered the environmental analysis for 282 oil and gas leases be sent back to the BLM for additional study. This is the second time in two years Judge Ralph Contreras issued such a ruling on the same set of leases. The judge claims supplemental analysis from the BLM failed to consider cumulative impacts of leases in the region and country while simultaneously failing to comply with NEPA. In addition to the judge, environmental groups, Wild Earth Guardians, and Physicians for Social Responsibility accuse the Obama administration of failing to account for potential emissions generated by oil and gas activity on lease parcels within Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado. Even so, that extends into the Trump administration, and they are working to fight this lawsuit. But this is likely just the beginning of the fight against industry and the West. I mean, if we look at Colorado, too, it's getting tougher in these parts. It is. It just seems like the West is kind of starting to mimic what California is doing and just trying to make it, at least for now, a little bit more difficult for individuals to operate now. Granted, um, again, I think the direction they're headed is strong. It's for the protection of the environment, protection of the people. I can't, get that. Can't get mad at that. Yeah. Just the way they're going about it. It's just, absolutely absurd. It's frustrating. But on a more happy note, North Dakota was one of the first oil and gas producing states to use the CARES Act money to alleviate some of the economic stress that the oil and gas industry has been experiencing. Now, Wyoming has chosen to follow in their footsteps. Governor Mark Gordon says, quote, these funds will have a direct impact on Wyoming's employment rate and put people back to work in our oil and gas sector, end quote. Even so, select groups like the Powder River Basin Resource Council feel that this is a misallocation of funds, expressing that they would rather see the money go to a project with public purpose, like plugging and abandoning wells instead of, quote, subsidizing select private companies, end quote. As of late 2019, there are 3,000 orphan wells in Wyoming. Either way, Wyoming has plenty of ways to spend its CARES money before the end of the year, and it's already struggling with depressed oil and gas prices, the phasing out of coal, and COVID. Now, I'm kind of with you on tabs. We kind of discussed this one already. I think if I was an individual in the oil and gas sector in Wyoming, I wouldn't really care where this CARES Act money went, whether it was plugging wells or completing these ducks. That being said, now that I have kind of more of a, a half a step back on this, I realize that completing these ducks are going to add to more state revenue. They're going to alleviate some of the, the burden on the state as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't understand why that's a bad thing, because of course it's going to help some private companies. I, I don't necessarily think it's subsidizing them. I mean, even the governor says these funds will have a direct impact on employment rate. That was his goal. That's what I think we're seeing. And, and you're right. If I'm the guy out there, I don't care what it is. I'll do it. Yeah, get just get work. me back to work. Speaking of work, Exxon actually has a lot of it on its plate. We head on down to the Permian region. There's some wins. There's some losses. And uh, it looks like Exxon is in the midst of one of those losses. So before dealing with its newest activist investor, Exxon began to announce big changes at the end of November. 
In addition to significantly cutting spending on exploration and production over the next few years, it also planned to write down up to $20 billion in investments in natural gas. This is a result of its first ever three consecutive quarters of loss. No longer will it be developing gas projects in Appalachia, the Rocky Mountains, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Canada, and Argentina. In order to not bleed any more money, future capital spending will be capped at $25 billion annually through 2025, and 14,000 employees will slowly be let go. Tough times for Exxon, but it hopes to bounce back when markets recover, deliver to its investors, and become relisted on the Dow Jones. Exxon's stock hasn't been worth this little since 2003. That last sentence right there is the one that's just brutal. Hasn't been worth this little since 2003. And they're one of the big guys. They're one of the guys that are innovators in the field. They're the ones that are always pushing the envelope. And now they really have to take a step back and... 17 years steps back in economic progress. and really realize, okay, what can we do to make sure we get through this and are profitable into the future? And it makes sense because investors are starting to put pressure on them. But hey, I got a little Monday Madness episode talking about that. Make sure you go to rarepetro.com to consume all that wonderful content, along with periodicals that we put out too. Moving on, we're going to talk about our friends at Apache. So Apache plans to reduce development in the Permian and pursue global developments amidst depressed prices. The company recently completed its third exploration test off the coast of Suriname, which happened to be the best so far. With plans to finish another two exploration wells through the end of the year, Apache is hoping to prove its competence to partner Total. While activity abroad is going well, activity in the Permian will be suppressed. Apache's Permian centerpiece, the Alpine High Play, returned most of its shut-in volumes but will continue to receive minimal funding through the end of 2020. If prices do recover and make new wells economic, they will change their plan. But for now, they will continue investments in the Suriname project and focus on completing ducks domestically. You see, this one's strange to me because I never thought the solution would be stopping activity domestically and investing in it abroad. I mean, you look at Exxon, they did the exact opposite. They stopped the exploration outside of there and they're going to stick with what they have. But this this is a really cool story. It is because kind of like you said, you know, normally and, and logically, you would think stick with your core assets that have worked for you for a really long time. You've got all this experience in. But instead, you know, they've got five completely foreign exploratory wells offshore, and they're going to focus all their funding on that. I, I do think it's interesting, but it's also kind of exciting. They're really just going to try and bite the bullet and, and see what, you know, if, if they can expand while everyone else is kind of contracting. Next up, we've got increasing water processing capacity. So even before the pandemic and pricing collapse of oil, operations were expanding in the Permian as more hydraulic fracturing operations bleed across the state boundary into New Mexico. While current pricing doesn't necessarily support a huge increase in production, the few new wells that are being drilled process an immense amount of water. Hydraulic fracturing jobs can use anywhere from 1.5 million gallons of water to 16 million. This means for every barrel of oil produced, around 10 barrels of water can be returned from flowback and formation water. In order to serve clients dealing with this much water, Solaris Water Midstream announced it began operations in its fresh New Mexico facility servicing the Permian. The company expects two more water recycling centers to be complete by December. Once all five facilities are online, the company will have the capacity to recycle up to 900,000 barrels per day and store more than 3 million. They also plan to develop a network of mobile recycling systems that can be deployed to sites in need for faster water reuse in New Mexico fields. All of these systems combined with 500 miles of pipeline infrastructure will allow Solaris to service 2,500 square miles, 
in southeast New Mexico. Now, that is an insane amount of coverage. Well, it's just cool, especially with my background being out in the field. Yeah, you're right. These volumes of water are crazy, and it takes so much time for you to get water delivered to location, fill up your tanks, you know, and if there's a processing facility nearby that you can get, you know, uh, even recycled water or fresh water from almost instantaneously, this is going to save so much time, so much money, and good on them for realizing this opportunity. Do you see a market for the mobile units they're trying to deploy? I didn't find a lot of details, but if a massive truck came and could handle a pretty significant amount of water, would that be helpful if you can just, I don't know, call it like Uber? Well, absolutely. I mean, think if you're doing a a multi-well pad frack, something like that, and you finish on the first well, you know, you're rigging up to the second well, you can start flowing back one of those wells. Maybe you're doing it a, a couple pads away, but you can start flowing back that well. And if you can use that water that's flowing back to start fracking down the next one, heck yeah, that would be awesome. And if we keep it in the neighborhood, moving from the Permian to the Eagleford, uh, like Kevin put it, our underdog is still our underdog. I mean, it was not doing the best already comparatively, but this year has certainly had its toll on the Eagleford. So Oventive has actually recognized that. As prices continued to stay low in November, more and more companies chose to limit their activity in Texas and the Eagleford specifically. Oventive is the latest company to bail on the Eagleford entirely. No. The Denver-based company bought their Eagleford acreage from Freeport McMorrin Incorporated for $3.1 billion in 2014, and any money they generate from the sales will be helpful in staving off some of the $7 billion in debt that the company has, even though they're really only likely to get $600 to $700 million back, which is a pretty pitiful return That's on investment. not a great return there. No. With shale production struggling, it is becoming more and more common to bail on less popular shale fields like the Eagleford. Oventive plans to focus on further reducing its debt, and it didn't exactly say how. Earlier this year, it cut its workforce by 25% and slashed 2020 capital investment by $500 million, but that $7 billion in debt still looms over them. Tough position to be in. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Eagleford. We won't bail on you, I promise. <laughs> But that's enough of that Texas area. Let's move over to California, where the word of the month is ban. Starting with ban number one, let's talk about San Francisco. San Francisco has now become the latest city to ban natural gas in new buildings, as 40% of the city's greenhouse gases come from powering buildings, compared to the nationwide average of 12%. This means that stoves, furnaces, and water heaters will no longer be able to burn gas for heat. The city backed its arguments with promises of cost-saving and public health benefits. The city hopes to start transitioning away from natural gas use in buildings now to make it easier to hit the state's goal of carbon neutrality by 2045. In total, 39 California cities have adopted building codes that limit or ban the burning of methane in order to expand electrification. Even with increased electrification, California is struggling to generate enough power in a clean manner. In 2019, 37% of California energy was generated by coal and natural gas, of which 43% was imported in times of high energy shortage due to an over-reliance on renewables. Again, we say this every time, like, California, your heart's in the right place, but it seems like you're doing more harm than you are good at this point. Yeah, any new building built in 2021 or beyond can't use natural gas. Nope, and the alternative, what, electric heating at that point, which is three to four times more expensive and also requires electricity, which they don't have, as we've seen with the shortages this year, and them being the largest importer of energy in the United States. But I guarantee you they're sitting there thinking, oh, look at all the good we're doing, not (laughs) realizing that they're just pulling in coal and natural gas from other states. But I I really feel bad the worst for, say, new restaurants that are going to try and 
you know, be built in San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco is a, this thriving metropolis. There's definitely going to be new buildings that are going to be built. How is a restaurant going to survive? Yeah. On an electric stove? Do you need a permit for that? I mean, some people require those materials for their cooking. So I, I don't know. I don't know where they're going with this. They're forcing themselves to make better decisions about their energy use, but they're not in a place to do that because they can't supply enough energy for everyone in the state. At least not yet. Not yet. Hopefully soon. I really hope the renewables get there, but they've got aggressive scaling and goals. And I don't know if stuff like this is really going to make that much of a difference. The next ban we're going to talk about actually comes from Kern County. So seven oil and gas leases are being challenged by both Governor Gavin Newsom and California Attorney General Javier Becerra. The California Air Resources Board and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and Center for Biological Diversity are claiming that the BLM sale of leases was based on a faulty environmental review finalized a year ago. Does this sound familiar from many other stories in the podcast? The lawsuit claims BLM's environmental review failed to fully evaluate the significant and adverse impacts on the communities and environment of eight central California counties. The review also goes on to say, significantly underestimates the percentage of new wells that would be drilled using fracking, ignores recent studies and best available science in evaluating the impacts of fracking, does not consider or attempt to mitigate the impacts of oil and gas development on nearby environmental justice communities, fails to analyze its proposed action for consistency with California state standards and policies, and fails to adequately analyze impacts to groundwater, and fails to adequately consider or mitigate the significant climate impacts of opening up more than 4,000 acres of lands to new oil and gas leasing. This is absurd. If you ask someone to cover all of this, you have a bunch of speculation. It could go from any range of variables. I, I mean, what, what do you want to hear is what it seems like they're asking. See, that's the problem. And we've talked about this before in previous podcasts where we say there's no concrete roadmap of what needs to be done and how we can be in line to get these permits approved. What can we actually do to have, you know, this development process moving forward? It's just this constant broken record with California of just can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. And like we saw on Powder River, it's not like these companies are steamrolling over land and going. They perform these environmental analysis. They submit it to the BLM. BLM says, yep. And then they say, no, do it again, but so, yeah, do five, it better. Oh, but five years later. <laughs> it, it was fine five years ago, but, but now it's not yep. for some reason. Tired of regulations yet? Good, because we've got another story about regulations. Moving over to the Marcellus Basin, let's talk about conventional development. Regulatory issues are creeping up in Pennsylvania thanks to the differences in conventional and unconventional drilling. Legacy producers in Pennsylvania have typically been operating under the guidance of the Oil and Gas Act of 1984. Once the unconventional production began to take off, Act 13 was introduced in 2012 to better regulate this new production method. Unfortunately, some of the regulatory requirements also apply to the conventional reservoirs and operators claim it provides additional burdens. The General State Assembly sent a new bill to Tom Wolf that tried to separate these shallow, unconventional wells from their deeper conventional plays. Unfortunately, Wolf vetoed the bill, expressing concern with diluting environmental regulations. This comes off the back of four years of work between the Department of Environmental Protection and Crude Oil Development Advisory Council as they search for regulations that are fair for all types of production. Time will tell if the proposed legislation will ever be adopted to address these differences. And I do want to clarify, since I did write this, I failed to explicitly mention it was introduced at that Act 13 in 2012 and was adopted four years later in 2016, which leaves four years of confusion between then and now as people try and settle out these differences. 
And it, it is truly unfortunate that it's taken this long for individuals to step up and try and send in a new bill. But I sympathize with all the producers out there as they're just really trying to produce the energy that the area needs. Mm-hmm. Next up, story I'm actually pretty excited about. We're making some wastewater money, and that's not a term you normally hear. Wastewater manager Eureka Resources has recently received a patent for its wastewater treatment process that allows lithium extraction. Rather than reinjecting wastewater with potentially valuable components, Eureka Resources strips the lithium from the water and predicts this process could provide 25% of domestic demand from the Marcellus region. At present, Eureka extracts lithium, salt, oil, and methanol from wastewater to guarantee maximum returns and minimize potential to inject toxic or harmful wastewater into producing formations. Right now, they operate in the Marcellus, but hope to expand into the Permian, Bakken, Haynesville, and Barnet basins by 2023. Because the water is so clean, Eureka is able to recharge impaired aquifers, creeks, rivers, and lakes, which it has been doing in Pennsylvania for more than 12 years under the watchful eye of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. And I want to clarify, that's 25% of national domestic demand just from the water they're processing in the Marcellus region alone. What? <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's absurd. That would be, uh, I think the article mentioned, that would supply the Department of Defense in all of their needs for lithium. And of course, we can use that for other energy applications for batteries or solar green technologies. Yeah, let's, I mean, if if the world is really pushing towards clean, green energy, which we've said time and time again, we support, we fully support, just people need to realize the, the mineral extraction processes. But if Eureka is able to pull this out of the ground, heck yeah. That's ins- I love it. Oil and gas. Look at that. Giving us the other energy materials that we need, even for the renewable sector. I mean, that wastewater management is futuristic, and keeping with that theme, we'll move on to the Bakken, where they are hoping to use drones. So drones are becoming an increasingly viable way to monitor oil and gas activity over large areas. North Dakota plans to build a ground-based network of sensors and radar systems, command and control relays, and an operations center that can process safety-critical data. The entire program will be named Vantis and allow automated drones to fly throughout large areas of the Bakken and monitor infrastructure. This will be a test project intended to test the viability of this sort of robot highway that can collect and transfer large amounts of critical data in hopes of expanding it into other sectors. The team managing Vantis hopes to coordinate safe flights in an autonomous fashion so that humans can reap the benefits from automation. Research for projects of this nature aren't new, but many projects focused on oil and gas objectives have been put on hold due to the low commodity pricing, but I am glad that we are actually pursuing this in the Bakken. I was going to say, can you imagine if a program like this was even proposed in a place like California? <laughs> we want to fly drones through the sky with a whole lot of 5G. and uh, Hell no! <laughs> Absolutely not. But North Dakota, let's give it a shot. Let's. I mean, I'm just excited to see the future of this project, so let's see where this right? goes. It's going to make the, the job of a production engineer or any service company so much easier if you can just pull from a data bank that's managed by the state that's just robots. Even, even say, a pumper out in the field. He doesn't have to drive to 80 different locations just to get fluid levels. It's right there at his fingertips. Very, very cool. North Dakota definitely has plenty of federal land on oil and gas developments, which might be a concern with the upcoming Biden administration. But do you know who doesn't? Oklahoma. Let's send it on down to the scoop stack. Although some states like North Dakota have based much of their activity on the now-threatened federal land, Oklahoma seems to have hope for the coming Biden administration energy policy changes. Since Biden has clarified a phasing out of hydraulic fracturing rather than an outright ban, Oklahoma sees itself in a decent position. 
Since only 2% of the land is owned by the federal government, the rest being public or Native American lands, banning activities on federally owned lands will have a minimal impact. The greater concern lies, of course, within the unknown. Brooke Simmons, president of the Petroleum Alliance of Oklahoma, says, quote, If Biden chooses to ban permits for drilling on federal lands, he even probably has some challenges ahead of them doing that, but he can still inflict pain on the industry through things like delays and just death by a thousand paper cuts by slowing the industry's plans for development or investment, end quote. And this is a really interesting one, because if you look at those past two months, we've been talking a lot about the Native American land and how that factors in and how that great portion actually reduces Oklahoma's federal lands to about 2%. So what comes out of that? Can we marry those two ideas? Well, th and that's, I think, the benefit of that Oklahoma is seeing here. If they can work with the, the federal tribes, or if, if Oklahoma's state government can work with the tribal governments, then it kind of seems like they might be a safe haven for oil and gas if only 2% of their land is federal and the federal government has pretty much no say over what developments they can have in their state. Yeah, and if the reservations say, oh, the federal government doesn't want your money and severance tax, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. You know, <laughs> bring it on in. And then it looked like new business was coming to Oklahoma. So while exploration and production continues to struggle through depressed pricing, a few key companies continue to make the best out of a rather poor situation. Houston-based Nine Energy Service planned to open an Oklahoma facility to support its cementing business. Unfortunately, investment money for that region actually dried up as confidence followed the trend of oil pricing. The scoop stack plays just aren't as attractive as many other areas, kind of like what we're seeing with the Eagleford, and it's becoming painfully apparent. Nine Energy Services lifted its plans and simply moved the facility to the Haynesville Shale area. They hope to stake out a large market share and support the required cementing needed to complete any ducks or new wells in that region. Unfortunately for Oklahoma, the business is being scared away by low commodity prices and just a lack of confidence in the plays. Got a feel for Oklahoma there. That's, that's kind of difficult. That's rough. You know, they had all this investment opportunity and then... Sight. It, it left. So that is actually the last basin we have to cover today. I know it didn't leave on so high of a note as you might have expected, but there were plenty of wins throughout this basin breakdown. I mean, the end of this year is wrapping up. Things are changing, and I don't know, Kevin. I, I think I see some hope moving forward. I have hope for 2021 for sure. So that is, again, the end of this episode. You can go to rarepetro.com if you didn't get enough of a fix. Kevin writes plenty of research periodicals, some opinion pieces that are definitely worth reading. I work to put out other podcasts with team members. We get lots of people to interview, lots of professionals, plenty of ways to continue to grow, and we want you to do it with us. So reach out to us, email us at podcast at rarepetro.com or leave reviews. We're doing it for you. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 